0: If it's not going to work for the landowner, it's not going to work for the fish. If we're going to put the rancher out of business, it's just not going to work. And so we've come up with these funding sources and these strategies that hopefully are win-wins for not only keeping ranching on the landscape, but you know helping them out a little bit. And While we're doing that, we're conserving not only grayling, but the whole watershed.
1: Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series Life in the Land in their entirety. I'm your host, Lara Tomov. In this episode of the Life in the Land series, we're still in the Big Hole Valley in southwest Montana, hearing from those involved in the Big Hole Watershed Committee. The committee was formed in 1995 and brings together fishing guides, scientists, government agencies, ranchers, and so much more to collaboratively steward the entirety of the Big Hole Watershed. Today, we hear from Jim McGee, who works with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program in the Big Hole Valley. The Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program exists in all 50 states and connects biologists with landowners to help them conserve and improve wildlife habitat on their property. Nearly 70% of the land in the United States is privately owned, so landowners play a key role in ensuring the health of all fish, wildlife, and plant species. The Partners Program is voluntary, and biologists work with landowners in providing free technical and financial assistance for things that are customized to meet that landowner's needs, as well as improve conditions for wildlife. For Jim, working with ranchers in the Big Hole, that can range from putting in new fencing that's wildlife friendly, improving water infrastructure, or land restoration work that retains more moisture in the grassland soils. As with most of the biologists in the Partners Program, Jim is a resident of the area in which he works, allowing him to create the necessary relationships with both the landscape and the communities that he works within. We spoke with Jim mid-July of 2021, among the sagebrush, in an orange-hued haze. It was only a couple of days after the start of the Trail Creek Fire, one of many fires that burned last summer and fall in the Big Hole. The Trail Creek Fire was burning only 10 miles from where we met with Jim, outside of Wisdom, Montana. This fire went on to burn through late October last year, eventually burning over 63,000 acres. Jim speaks with us about the intact landscapes of the Big Hole Valley, breaking down prejudices between landowners and agencies, and how he's worked with ranchers to successfully keep the Arctic grayling fish off of the endangered species list.
0: So the Big Hole is part of the high divide. We're in between like the greater Yellowstone and then the wilderness areas in Idaho and then the crown of the continent to north. So we still have a lot of open space and um, you know fairly undeveloped. The valley bottoms are primarily cow calf and hay operations and then we have sage step and then we have forested mountains. So. Um, Just very unique, still intact landscape with a lot of our species that have been here for a long, long time.
1: And you know, in your work, you're on this landscape a great deal and really analyzing it and its health. Um, For you, it's probably like a sixth sense when you walk out on a landscape to look at all the components. Even in this area, for example, what are the things, the specific things you're noticing that are indicating a healthy landscape here?
0: We still have the rich valley bottoms and then the riparian areas and then the sage step that's intact. And it's all connected from the valley bottom to the forest. And so many wildlife species use the whole thing and cross back and forth. I mean, that's, that's kind of our goal is to, to keep this place healthy and to keep habitat intact and, and yet still have a working economy with the landowners and the ranchers
1: and can you tell us what we're seeing this year
0: so this year is a tough year we've got a record drought going on i think our june precipitation which was almost zero and that's our wettest month and so it's just been tough on everybody uh, the hay crop is suffering um, the the ranchers weren't able to get a good coverage of water onto their fields and then the uplands are, are suffering. So stream flows are low, um, everybody's doing everything they can to keep uh, water in the river, but it's just, it's just a really tough deal this year.
1: And what are you noticing as a biologist on the landscape because of that drought?
0: You know, we're having some warm temperatures in the streams and then of course uh, the uplands drying up. Um, as you can see behind us already for mid-July, this would be a lot greener behind us here. So it's gonna to be tough this year. I mean, for, for our fisheries and for grayling, we're just trying to, to maintain connectivity in the, in the streams and the rivers so that um, there, is, there is places in the watershed that are thermal refugia. And so there are places that are better and colder water so that the fish can move into those places. I think there is definitely changes in climate it's just it's getting warmer and drier I mean we're still fairly lucky um, up here in the big hole because high elevation and it's really driven by snow and we've had some decent snow um, years but uh, this year wasn't. So yeah I think the trend of warmer and just a change in when that precipitation comes. So it's something that I guess our philosophy with conservation is um, to, to build in resiliency into, into the habitat, into the systems. And how do you do that? You, you have the right vegetation and you have the right um, channel type and the right width to depth, the right shading. And so building that resiliency into, especially the streams um, is, is what we can do. Uh, This year has also been a tough fire year and again it's early. Uh, We've got a number of fires located very close by here close to Wisdom. Uh, One of them is only about six miles to the west I think and you can see uh, it's fairly socked in with smoke and probably will be for quite a while.
1: Can you tell us where we are here as far as this land and some of the projects that you've been working with the landowner? Right now we're about three
0: or four miles east of Wisdom on the Hat Creek Ranch. And the Hat Creek Ranch is a small cow-calf operation. We've been working with the Hat Creek Ranch for probably six or seven years. When they um, bought the ranch, the previous landowner was enrolled in our grayling conservation program. And so we met them and asked them if they were interested in continuing that and they were and so we started working with them on some stream restoration, riparian fencing, um, hardened crossings, stock water wells, um, and that, that's just expanded into this sage step habitat work uh, where we're working on um, improving this mesic area behind us, um, removing invasive conifers, um, and one of the big projects we did with Hat Creek was to help them install some solar stock water tanks. And by doing that, they're able to kind of spread their livestock out on the land and be able to manage them better for the land and move their
1: cows more often. And can you tell me about that partnership? You know, as an agency, you work with a lot of private landowners and that importance of relationship building and trust building and and that those things take time, right?
0: Yeah, you know, I think what is so important for conservation success on private land is building that trust and, and patience. I mean, I think it takes a long time sometimes. And our, our program's philosophy is to put someone in the community. Uh, I mean, landowners, and with, with good cause, they are suspicious of government a lot of times. And so when you put someone in the community that, and you show them that you care about their livelihoods I think that's what you need to do for success. And I view my job as how can I make conservation easier? How can I make it easier for a landowner or a agency partner or a, you know, a conservation partner? How can I make their job easier? How can I make it easier for us to implement conservation? I think it's so important to understand what the landowners needs are to run their ranches. I mean, and, and that's their economy, that's their livelihood. So for me, I've learned so much about what their needs are, what their water needs are, what their grazing needs are, you know, how, how they can maintain their, their ranches. Um, at the same time, I think that we've been able to um, educate landowners what the needs of, of the fish and the wildlife are. and it's absolutely doable if people will listen to each other and be able to be flexible it's absolutely doable and i think that's what's going on in the big hole
1: and you know a lot of these conservation programs are labeled by a certain species but can you talk about how it's it's holistic management right it's actually looking at the entire ecosystem and then there's kind of just the label of that species on it but it's how it's really more about looking at the entire ecosystem.
0: Yeah, you know, our and my history up here really started with Arctic grayling and stream flows and riparian areas, but it's all connected. These, this whole landscape is connected from the valley bottom to the mountain peaks. And um, when you fragment one type of habitat, it's gonna have impacts on the next type of habitat. So having this landscape watershed scale um, conservation effort, keeping open spaces, keeping these big ranches intact, um, that is such a key for for all these wildlife species you know, in the Big Hole and you know in in Southwest Montana.
1: I know it can be different based on each area, but what would be the threats if this land did not continue to be a working landscape?
0: So one of the major threats, as with most wildlife and wildlife habitat is is development. If we take landowners and ranchers off the land and we're now dealing with roads and concrete and houses, um, it it just fragments habitat. And so I think the the philosophy we have is we're people on the landscape, and we have to live. And so, the working landscape philosophy of keeping folks on the ground, but having that landscape intact it is gonna keep our wildlife resources existing. So once we lose that, then it's a downward trend. Um, it's so hard to come back from, from roads and houses and concrete, there's <laughs> not much you can do. Um, but when you have
1: this, you can do a lot. A lot of Jim's work in the Big Hole Valley is around the Arctic grayling, which is a fish species whose last fluvial stronghold, or native river population, in the lower 48 is in the upper Big Hole watershed. With the threat of government regulation on water use if the fish were to be listed under the Endangered Species Act, ranchers were motivated to steward the river on their own terms, in ways that benefit the fish habitat and water quality and quantity.
0: So, Arctic is a is a member of the salmonid family, uh, which is trout and salmon. It's very colorful. It has a, a real large sail-like dorsal fin, with some just incredible coloring, turquoises, and um, it is. Got a number of different names, one of them is Lady of the Stream, one of them is Sailfish of the North. Arctic grayling is uh, native to the Upper Missouri River system in Montana and one of the last populations is here in the Big Hole. A lot of my career has been working on Arctic grayling. There was only two populations in the lower 48, one in Michigan which is extinct and they're trying to bring them back, um, and then in the Upper Missouri headwaters. and that distribution had declined um, and the Big Hole River for a while was really the only strictly river, fluvial arctic grayling population. And so it's it's very unique here. And the really, another unique part about it is, in the Big Hole arctic grayling habitat is 90% private land. And so as management and conservation agencies, if we don't work with private landowners, we really are handcuffed about how effective we can be for conservation. We've been working with landowners for over 30 years and about 13 years ago, we started a program called the Candidate Conservation Agreement with Assurances Program. And it's a program where um, if you have a species that could be listed under ESA. If a a private landowner enrolls in that program and has a conservation plan that addresses threats for that species, if the species is listed, then they they do not have to do anything else. You know, so we have landowners, 33 landowners in the big hole that have these site-specific conservation plans for Arctic grayling. And each one of those plans addresses stream flows, riparian and river habitat, um, fish passage and entrainment, which is grayling being caught in an irrigation ditch. And so that was a huge deal in the big hole because grayling's been on and off the ESA candidate species list since 1990. And the folks up here, the landowners were really concerned about the potential ESA impacts on especially their ability to use water and to graze. And so what the CCA program did is, just, is really just give them peace of mind. It's been phenomenal. The habitat has improved, the stream flows have improved and the population has responded. It's just been really rewarding to work with the, the landowners on this and to build those relationships and then see it transfer to a more stable and more abundant grayling
1: population. Jim tells me about what the actual application of this work looks like on the ground.
0: There's the four threats that we're trying to address with landowners for Arctic grayling. And the first one is stream flows. And so what we've done in the big hole is we have five different segments in our conservation program. And we have flow triggers for each segment. And when we hit a low flow trigger, each landowner that's enrolled in that segment has a plan to reduce X amount of their irrigation and put it back in the stream. And and it's worked very well. It's tough because that's their livelihood. But I think the reason it works is because it's a shared sacrifice. So the guy upstream's giving up water and so is the guy downstream. And so if everyone gives a little, um, that shared sacrifice has worked. And we went from before our CCA program, we were hitting those flow targets about 56% of the time, and now we're hitting them about 78% of the time. So that's that's a big, huge component of it, and, it, and it's super complex. There's, there's over 500 points of diversion enrolled, and water rights are just very complex. And the other thing about it is it's all connected because like a landowner in reach A opens up his ditch A lot of that water is going to go to reach B, and so they depend on each other. Um, We've got, you know, incredible hydrologists from DNRC that that runs that part of the program. And and it's very challenging, but it works. The second part is river habitat and riparian habitat. And the goal for each landowner, for each stream reach is to have a sustainable condition on that reach and so we rate them every five years and they're rated as um, not sustainable, at risk or sustainable. If they're not sustainable, we implement some type of conservation measure, whether it's riparian fencing, grazing management, an off-stream stock water system to help improve that reach. And then the third threat that we're addressing is fish passage and so if there's any barriers to fish passage, then they have to be addressed. And we do that through a number of different conservation measures. Fish ladders in irrigation um, diversions are a big one. We've got, I think, 78 fish ladders in the upper big hole. We also do grade control, bridges, removing bad culverts. And, and you know, what that is doing is allowing those fish to reach the habitats, those grayling to reach the habitats they need. Um, whether it's upstream or downstream to reach thermal refugia, to reach um, winter habitat, to reach spawning habitat. So it's so important to have that connectivity. And then finally, the fourth threat that we are addressing through the CCA is entrainment, which is grayling being um, captured by irrigation ditch. And so we do, sur- Fish Wild and Parks does surveys every year on certain ditches we have a schedule and if we find grayling in the ditches, um, there's a rescue plan to move them back. And then also we do fish screens. The way we do a diversion will lessen, lessen the uh, potential for entrainment.
1: And can you tell me, what is your process, say if you need to approach a new landowner that isn't part of the program already? What does that, that process look like? The way the CCA
0: program works is we have a team of agencies. There's Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, and we have Montana DNRC, who helps us with the water part. And then we have the NRCS um, that works on private lands. And so when we went out to the landowners and we asked them if they were interested in the CCA, they said yes, and, and that was started the ball rolling. Uh, specifically, one rancher was like, I want one of those, because he was very concerned about listing. Um, and that spread, but then when we have, let's say a new landowner come in, or uh, a sale of a land, the, the CCA goes with the land, so if the previous landowner was enrolled, it, it stays with it, but we have to go to that new landowner, and this happens fairly often, um, and say, are you interested in this program? And a lot of times they'll already know about it because a lot of their neighbors are. Um, sometimes if they're not, they'll, they'll ask why and um, we'll explain the, the benefits of the protections. But also, you know, we try to come with resources. We have, we've been super lucky to have some great funding so we try to make it a win-win so you know if we put in a stock water system for a rancher you know that's gonna help them um, you know they might not have to chop ice in the winter or they have this clean cold source of water and what we get back from it is maybe they're not diverting water into the out of the river in in times when we hit our flow targets or maybe those cows aren't hanging out right in the riparian area because their water is elsewhere. We've been super fortunate at, um, you know, having these 33 landowners pretty much for 13 years now. You know, it's been great. They're all engaged. I think the reason it works is because they know us now. <laughs> um, we, they know we're not after their ranch or their livelihood. We, we care about um, the natural resources, the fish and the wildlife, but we also care about we want to see them stay on the land and and they know we care about them and so they're willing to to work with us our philosophy our when i say we is our team our cca team um, is if it's not going to work for the landowner it's not going to work for the fish if we're going to put the rancher out of business it's just not going to work and so we've come up with these these funding sources and these strategies i think that that hopefully are win-wins for um, not only keeping ranching on the landscape, but you know helping them out a little bit, you know, with things that they would not be able to do themselves, like you know fencing or stock water or stream restoration. And while we're doing that, we're we're conserving not only grayling but the whole watershed and many many species, many many aquatic birds, mammals, all the species that you utilize that habitat.
1: Can you tell me about your involvement with the Big Hole Watershed Committee? What ways you interact with that? So I've been here for
0: 28 years now <laughs> and kind of where it all started was some really bad water years in the early 90s. And at that time, you know, there was a lot of uh, finger pointing and polarization between you know, irrigators and recreationists and other community members. And so um, the governor's task force called a meeting and divide and got the stakeholders to sit down and start talking about what can we do about low flows in the big hole. That was really the start of the big hole watershed committee. And so I've been a technical advisor on that committee since it started. And they've been they've been great because they bring they bring that community interest to the table with the willingness, you know, to tackle hard challenges and and with the goal of, you know, maintaining the livelihood, maintaining the cultural and natural resource values of the watershed. The other, I think, learning piece for me in this whole CCA program is just the importance of partnerships so like our agency partnerships is so important and it's working so well I think I learned that you know you can't do it alone you've got to have partners if you're going to succeed whether the partners are are the ranchers or other biologists or hydrologists or the watershed committee you have to have those partnerships and the community involved if it's going to succeed you know one of the things that is so important is to have the community involved in these programs because the nightmare stories are where uh, someone up here tells you something to do. <laughs> how you're gonna run your land, how you're gonna ranch, how you're gonna irrigate. Uh, and that just doesn't work, we know that. We, do, we know that someone that doesn't even live here is trying to tell you how, how to, to run your life but if you're involved with those decisions, if you're part of a program, it just, it just, you have pride in it. Around the West and probably around the whole um, United States, these small collaborative conservation stories, they all have some of the same building blocks and that's having local people living on the land, um, working together to address a common a challenge and so i think that is just the key for any of these programs to work
1: you know there's realistic challenges in that process right of not only you know locally led but also collaborative um that it's not all kumbaya right right <laughs> um, just the reality of you know folks with very different priorities or um you know what that looks like when those things come together but what you've seen of folks that might you know come to together to think that they're going to confront somebody else, but then seeing where they do find that common ground.
0: Yeah, I think it takes time for these type of community collaborative conservation groups to evolve. It takes it takes building that trust. And so I think when you start, there's so many different skepticism and concern about if someone has an agenda or not. But I think if you if you have the patience and you can show that you care about the partnership and about individuals, um, then you can overcome that. It's, it's about people. <laughs> you know, one thing I've learned is, like, never say never. I mean, I've been told so many times, you can't work with that person. And then 20 years later, they might be one of your number one advocates. Just because someone tells you that they're tough to work with Things change, so if you can build that trust, um, just, I say never say never to a relationship for, for this type of conservation.
1: Jim leaves us with words on how he views the landscape and the significance of these kinds of approaches that look at the entirety of an ecosystem, working on this larger landscape scale.
0: Every time I come to the big hole, I drive over Carroll Hill, and I, it doesn't cease to amaze me how beautiful it is. And I asked myself why, and it's just like, everything is, is so connected and important. The soil, the plants, the pollinators, the bugs, when you have intact systems, it's just, it's, it's mother nature's best, right? So I just think it's, it's so special to maintain that whole ecosystem, that whole the, the whole nature of it. Um, whether it's a tiny little bug or a trophy elk, Um, It's all connected, and it's all important, because everything else is relying on everything else. So just having that intact landscape is really where we should be focusing our conservation efforts.
1: Thank you so much to Jim McGee for speaking with us. You can learn more about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services Partners Program at fws.gov. If you're interested in being connected to the program in your area, you just have to give a phone call or an email to your state's coordinator, also listed on the FWS site. To learn more about the Big Hole Watershed Committee, check out bhwc.org and find them on Facebook and Instagram. You can also join their meetings, which are the third Wednesday of every month in the Grange Hall in Divide, Montana. All of these links are on this episode's show notes. Be sure to check out the other four podcast episodes which hear from other voices in the Big Hole Valley. You can check out the rest of the Life in the Land project at lifeintheland.org where you can find the film featuring these voices from the Big Hole Valley as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Shoshone, Bannock, Lemai Shoshone, Kalispell, Epsalaga, Nez Perce, Northern Cheyenne, Blackfeet and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode and to Katie Sprout for production assistance in the field. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and learn more about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible with support from the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilbur Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mine Lands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winnet Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne. An additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher's Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Whitted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader and Chase Hibbert. Also a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to support future life in the land work, you may do so at lifeintheland.org. We greatly appreciate the support. Thank you all so much for listening.